as we continue on our interview series with a bunch of Olympic athletes talking about their time at the Olympics, future Olympians, you name it, we're covering it as we fill the void that is missing from our lives right now when we should be watching and observing the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Got a great chat with you, uh, well not with you, for you today I should say on the program. We have an Olympic bronze medalist by the name of Ziggy. We're just going to simply refer to her as Ziggy today because a lot of people listening to this would know her from um, that name. That is her, her nickname that has kind of followed her around. Um, people who maybe listen to our other shows who uh, follow what we do out there would obviously know her a lot from Australian Survivor. But, of course, before Survivor, she she was an Olympian, competed at the London 2012 Olympics, the Rio 2016 Olympics, and our first water polo player on the show too. And this is a great chat learning everything about how she got into the sport, some of the unique tactics that are involved in water polo and also the, the whole Olympic experience. He really gives a great insight into what it's like being an Olympic athlete and experiencing that lifestyle of the, the Olympic village and bumping into some of these global stars of, of sport and everything else in between. So fun chat. I know you're going to enjoy it. Sit back and relax and listen to our Olympian athlete with the one, the only Ziggy. Continuing on our interview series here on Off the Podium, and I'm very excited for today's interview because I don't think I've ever come into an interview on this show where I can say I've already interviewed a guest but on a different show about a different subject. Generally, if I've got a person returning to this show, I've talked to them about the Olympics before. I've talked to them about their amazing Olympic career, and I like them so much clearly that I want to talk to them again. This is the same case with our guest today, but the other time I spoke to them, it was about being on the TV show Survivor. We're not here to talk about that. Crap, so who cares about Survivor? No one watches that show. We want to learn about the Olympics. And our guest today is a two-time Olympian, Olympic bronze medalist from London in 2012 in water polo, and our very first water polo player we've ever had on this show. And so important and special and amazing is she. She's like Madonna. She's like Cher. She just has one name. Her name is simply Ziggy, and she's with us on the show today. Ziggy, welcome to Off the Podium. <laughs> Oh, wow. Thank you. It's, <laughs> that was a good um, introduction. Well, I, I try and work out these my best the way I can do it. But, uh, you know, that that's my Olympic achievements. I'm trying to, you know, talk up the Olympians and one day they can, you know, put introductions in the Olympics and maybe I'll be in with a shot one day. But I was just I was just talking to you off air, interestingly enough, about when, when you search for you, when you kind of look now about uh, who you are and kind of your, your achievements – 
it it does kind of come up now a lot with Survivor and sort of not as much about your your water polo career. I mean, fantastic, of course, to to see that you're out there, but. Does that kind of surprise you? I mean, I don't know if you Google yourself much, but that you kind of see now that it's all about Survivor now and, and not about your water polo career. Yeah. Um, I mean, it kind of does surprise me. I think maybe maybe just the name Ziggy, I think, is well-known in the media to do with Survivor, whereas with water polo, obviously, it's like a team sport. So maybe unless you put water polo next to it or Aussie Stingers, um Olympic water polo, Ziggy, maybe I would come up. But, yeah, I've noticed that Survivor um, definitely takes control of the first few pages in Google at the moment. <laughs> and, and is it something that, I mean, do you now, if, if you, say, did a, a talking circuit or something like at a school or kind of something like that, like are people focused more on your time on Survivor or water polo or do you try and balance both so that you kind of, you know, cause you've obviously got stories from both that you can share with people? Yeah, I always definitely start with my Olympic water polo career, um, especially when talking at schools and everything um, and to younger kids, I always start with that. Um, and then I kind of end with how that water polo career has like taken me and given me opportunities in other areas and then kind of use Survivor as a bit of an example. But I actually always find that, you know, I'm, I'll ask, does anyone have any questions? And I'll get like one water polo question and then I'll get like 45 like Survivor questions. <laughs> so um, yeah, I always focus on the Olympic um, water polo aspect, but it always ends up taking a turn. Well, this is why we're glad to have you here today to talk about the uh, yeah. the Olympic side of things. I just to get get over and done with. I think I know um, we discussed this on the other podcast about Survivor, but I'm sure a lot of people right now are probably trying to you know, well, why are you called Ziggy? You know, where's where's that nickname come from? I feel like that's that's on the tip of my tongue right now. I'm going to forget to ask it later. So let's get yeah. over done with Ziggy. Why, why, where's, where does Ziggy come from? Yeah, so my name, my maiden name is Zagami. So Nicola Zagami um, was my name growing up. And actually Ziggy started in the water polo circles um, when I joined the Cronulla Sharks. Um, it was one of the guys in the boys team who just started calling me Ziggy and it's kind of stuck ever since. Um yeah, so originally it was the water polo circles who knew me as Ziggy and all my like, school friends and school teachers still called me Nicola. But then it kind of um, transitioned from my water polo world kind of into my other world more. Um, so Ziggy's definitely a water polo um, name. That's where it started. What What do you prefer? Like, is it something like your husband, does he refer to you as Ziggy? Is it Nicola? Like your parents? What, yeah, where, where does it, what happens there? It's weird. Um, my husband calls me Ziggy because he's also a water polo guy and he knew me as Ziggy from the very beginning. Um, so it's weird when he calls me Nicola, like just when I'm in trouble. Um, my <laughs> parents call me Nicola. Um, my close family call me Nicola, except I do have a few cousins um, who also played water polo or just have transitioned into Ziggy. Um, a few of my school teachers called me Ziggy, mostly like the PE department. Um, so it just varies, but definitely certain people call me Ziggy, certain people call me Nicola, and if they deter from that, it gets really weird. I, I can imagine, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> how yeah. how did you get into water polo, Ziggy? Like where, where did this all begin? So growing up, I was into surf lifesaving um, massively. I was right into nippers, um, competed at all the national champs and stuff. So I initially wanted to be in the Nutri-Grain Ironwoman series. That was my um, ultimate goal when I was younger. Um, and I kind of transitioned into water polo. Just one of my really good friends in primary school, 
she her family was kind of involved and she asked me if I wanted to join her water polo team um and because I was like a pretty good swimmer already um I joined her team and I kind of loved it from the beginning just because I was like faster than everyone else (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so for a while I was doing both surf club and water polo but kind of it began clashing you know surf carnivals would be on the same weekend as like our water polo games and tournaments and whatnot so um, kind of eventually I had to decide what I wanted to focus on. Um, so probably when I was 16, 17, I like made a conscious decision that I would choose water polo um, pretty much because I wanted to go to the Olympics over like being in the Nutri-Grain series. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to ask like how much was that sort of a, a deciding factor because I yeah, mean, massive. so 16, 17, that's sort of just around Beijing. And then obviously women's water polo made its debut in, in Sydney. So do you, do you remember as a, as a 10 year old watching the Sydney Olympics and Australia getting the gold in Sydney? Honestly, I don't think I watched it. I do remember, I feel like I remember them getting gold, but at that stage, I don't think I was playing water polo. I think I first started when I was 11. So just after that, um, yeah, so 2000, I wasn't really involved, but definitely um, the 20, like the 2008 Olympics, I was like following water polo for sure. Um, I was playing like pretty high level club water polo at that stage, and I knew a few of the local girls in the team. So definitely 2008, I was um, hooked the whole time. It's, I can imagine surf lifesaving into water polo. I mean, obviously the swimming aspect is very similar, but outside of that, I, I mean, I don't know how many similarities there are between the two. Yeah. Is, there, is there many that I kind mean, of help? Yeah, getting dumped in huge surf and having a wrestle with a t- like an opponent, I think is quite similar. You get like water up your nose and in your eyes, um, you might lose a like arm of a cozy or something like that. <laughs> um, but there, there were a few, like there, I have a few teammates who kind of overlapped as well. I think just being like confident in the water um, and getting dunked under and all of that transitions well into water polo. Yeah. Was that something that just was always from, from being young that you just took to the water? The water was something that you just absolutely loved being in? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, growing up I was constantly in the water. I've got an older brother as well, so we would go out um out back in massive surf and just be catching waves the whole time. My mum would be like begging us to come in. Um, yeah, so I've always been a water baby. And this was all, Definitely. was this all in Cronulla, Sutherland sort of area of Sydney? Yeah, yeah that's right. Beautiful part, like absolutely beautiful yeah. part. I've been there a couple of times. I mean, I'm a mad shark supporter, so kind of, you know, always oh, yeah. had that uh, little bit connection as well. My mum grew up actually part of her life in Cronulla as well. So it's it's a stunning part. I mean, this, Sydney has so many stunning parts of it, but, I mean, you know, when that's right at your your back door, like, of course you're going to be in the water all the time, aren't you? Yeah. No, that's right. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful part, as I said. And when you start playing water polo and kind of, you know, finding this is fun, what what is the scene like at that point as a junior in, in water polo in Sydney? I mean, was there a lot of added competitors after the gold in Sydney? Like, do you know sort of how those were compared to maybe where it was just before you started in water polo? Um, I definitely think in women's water polo, maybe there was a rise in people sticking with the sport because you could actually make it to the Olympics. Like, I think 
it just the Sydney 2000 Olympics when women's water polo was included, um, I think it was just a real like motivate, motivator for women and young girls in sport, knowing that there was a really good opportunity in that in that sport. Um, maybe as well, like like you said before, the Sutherland Shire and the Cronulla area is um, very water focused. So water polo in that area growing up was quite popular already. Um, yeah, and there was a few girls in that team from the area. There was a few girls in the 2004 Olympic team and 2008 Olympic team who grew up, um, went to my high school and everything as well. So definitely um, in the circles that I was involved with, um, the inclusion of water polo in the Olympics definitely would have, um, yeah, contributed to girls joining the sport for sure, no doubt. I don't know if it would be the same in other areas, but definitely in, in the area I grew up in. What's the balance like when you, you the swimming aspect in water polo is obviously very important, but you've also got that small little aspect of uh, getting a ball and putting it in the back of a net to score. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to training, what, you focus on swimming. Do you focus on ball skills? Is there a mixture kind of what, what is the balance there? Yeah. So like not many people know, but in water polo, the pool is really deep. So you often play in the diving pool, which is like five meters deep. So at no point can you stand up. So leg work is, and like leg strength is really important. Like a lot of what you see is above the water, but 80% of what you're doing and the energy that you release is from your legs in the lower half. So we did a lot of um, leg work, building leg strength um, and like leg endurance, I suppose. Um, And your hips and everything are always in a quite an awkward position. So building up strength in that area was, um, is always like a big focus in water polo. Um, all of our fitness work was done with swim sets. So not many of us, um, went for runs or anything to get our cardiovascular fitness. So that was all done in swim sets. Um, we also had a really big, uh, gym focus. So lifting weights, um, both like absolute strength and, um, like power and speed was like, is a massive focus in water polo as well. Um, yeah. And then all like ball skills and tactics and that kind of thing. So it's like, it's got a lot of variety to training as well, which is always good. Um, so generally we do like maybe three or four, three to four K swim sets a week. Um, and then three gym sessions a week and then anywhere from like, or maybe six or seven other pool sessions where you're focusing more more on shooting, catching, leg work, um, team tactics and that kind of thing. And I can imagine with the ball handling that doing it outside of a pool is kind of useless. You're always wanting to do that in the pool yeah. because, I mean, it's no well and good you sitting on a netball court or something and throwing a ball back and forth when that's not going to help you when you're in a swimming pool. Yeah. Um, at junior levels, they kind of teach the right technique and everything on land. Um, but as soon as you, yeah, I don't know, uh, 16 or maybe 15 or older, yeah, all of your ball skills are done in the pool. However, um, my Olympic coach for both of my Olympic cycles, um, Dumper, he was really big on us having like fine motor skills with the ball as well. So we, when we're on tour and during camps, we always had to carry a water polo ball around with us at all, at all times. Um, so even when we were going to like the dining hall or, you know, when we were walking to the gym, we always had to have a water polo ball in our hand just so we'd be playing around with it, um, just mucking around just so we could get those fine motor skills. I think he just thought every second counts. Wow. So, 
Was it was that funny? <laughs> yeah. Was that fun explaining going out to dinner and why have you got a ball? Oh, you know, because coach said so. Yeah, yeah. It was like annoying sometimes. So there were times <laughs> there were times where we'd be like, I don't know, waiting for a train or something in Japan and we'd all have our balls and then <laughs> someone would get hit and like the ball would go across the train tracks and it's like, oh, it's like such a nightmare. Wow. Um and also all the other teams used to look at us weirdly, like we'd have to bring our ball to the dining hall and stuff. <laughs> um and he also encouraged us to use kind of old balls that didn't have good grip on them. So we could like just improve our motor skills even more. So a lot of the balls were looking a bit scummy and we'd be like taking them to dinner and stuff. It was quite funny. <laughs> is, is a water polo ball in terms of dimensions, I mean, how does that compare to say a netball? Like, I mean, is it bigger, smaller? And you're sort of talking about the grip there. So is, it's obviously a different, more durable material so it can be used in the water? Yeah, it's um, – so I think the men's size water polo ball would be similar to the netball size. And then the women's water polo ball would be slightly smaller. Um, Material-wise, it would be the same, like, it's quite pumped up, so it would be the same pressure, I suppose, as a netball. Um, but definitely the texture on the outside's a bit different. Oh, it's really, I don't know, I can't really describe it. But um, you can get, like, when you go to Rebel Sport and stuff, sometimes they sell water polo balls, but they're not, like, the legit water polo balls. Those ones are a bit plasticky. Um, the ones that you play with in real competitions, yeah, have a kind of different texture. They still it. hurt, really no doubt, if you get smacked know. in the face with one of them, though, right, Ziggy? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, so many times. I was probably the culprit of hitting a few of my teammates in the face, actually. Holly, if you're all watching, sorry. <laughs> Accidentally, of course, I, uh, I hope. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, definitely was, but she her head would always seem to find where I was bouncing the ball. Yeah. Now is that is that Holly Lincoln Smith? Is that <laughs> yes, it, it is. is. <laughs> I I know the name because I I've interviewed her sister Emma uh, when she okay. was after I think it was Vancouver when she was in skeleton, and uh, mm-hmm. I remember discussing that her her sister was a, an Olympic bronze medalist. So um, obviously, uh, yeah, I mean skeleton fascinate the hell out of me. So I was like skeleton, yes, this gosh. is crazy, crazy sport. Head first down like the lose track. Yeah. yeah you got to be crazy. Insane, <laughs> insane. What is the progression when you start in water polo and kind of making your way up? So is it school, then club, then kind of state, then nationals? I mean, how does it work? How did you build up to eventually making the national team? Um, so I started playing just club water polo, so for the Cronulla Sharks. Um, and then gradually you make your way through the age groups um, until you're playing the national league level. So like first grade for your club. Um, so within those age groups, like you compete at like national championships. So you might play for Cronulla in like the under 16s national champs. Um, and then from that tournament, there'd be like an under 16s um, state and or national team selected. So you might have the opportunity to represent your state or your country at a different tournament. Um, within your age group and then um, kind of as soon as you've made first grade in your club um, the national coach goes around and watches all the first grade um, national league competitions Um, and from that um, club comp he selects like a big squad of um, potentials for the national team who kind of the squad begins at the start of the four-year cycle so at the beginning um, so in the lead up to London uh, in 2009, he would have selected maybe a squad of 55, 60 girls who were like potential candidates for the next Olympics. 
Um, and then you kind of um, go to camps and you get selected for different tournaments um, over those four years. And gradually the squad just gets reduced um, and cut as you get closer to major tournaments or as you get closer to the Olympic, the next Olympics. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, now there's definitely more of a focus on school water polo um, compared to when I was at school, but the national like coaches don't really watch the school competitions. Um, the school is kind of like a bit of an extracurricular training and competition. Um, most of the national program is run through the clubs. Is yeah. it a sport where sort of the age range, you're talking about a lot more focus on school-based water polo now, but is there kind of a, a general peak age range as a water polo athlete where, say, you don't maybe have many people in their 30s or kind of you do? Like, I mean, kind mm -hmm. of what's sort of the peak age range for a water polo player? Okay. Uh, for women, um, to make, like, the national team, I'd say the peak age would probably be from, like, 23 until maybe 28. Um, that's probably where most of the girls um, are involved. For men, it might be slightly later. So the men might be from, like, 25 to 30, 32. Right. Um, that would be the peak age. That's in Australia. But definitely in Europe, um, the range is a lot greater. Like they get paid. It's a professional sport in Europe, um, especially in Eastern Europe, like Croatia and Hungary, Montenegro and things like that. So definitely in those countries, um, the players stay around for a lot longer. Um, it's rare in Australia that you have someone over the age of like maybe 32 in the women's team. Um, it does, it does happen, but it's not common. Um, but definitely, yeah, in teams like Italy, um, they've got girls playing until they're like, 35 and it's just not that unusual yeah i mean you're still very young ziggy you're only you're only 30 right yeah. so i mean you yeah well not even i'm 29 yeah we're 29 so about to turn 30 yeah, um retired. <laughs> retired exactly so after rio so 26 that you retire so i mean we'll talk about that a little bit later obviously uh once we get there but i mean realistically you could technically still be playing right now yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've got a lot of teammates who are my age or a bit older who are still in the national team. Um, but, I mean, I made the national team for the first time when I was 18 as well. So I competed at my first Olympics when I was 21. So I was, like, training at a high level for, like, many years as well. I was just lucky that I kind of got into the, like, the exciting part at a young age. Um, so, yeah, going to my first Olympics at, 20, at 21 was pretty young compared to a lot of people as well. Which, does that make it tricky sort of doing the regular teenage things, going to high school, having friends, you know, doing that kind of stuff when you're in, in the process of, you know, trying to make an Olympic team? I mean, does that make it yeah. tricky or kind of how's that balance when you were doing all that? Yeah, like I think it worked well for my personality. I don't know. I wasn't ever into going out and you know, staying out till 3am or anything like that. And I kind of like used water polo as a bit of an excuse. Like, oh, sorry, I've got to go. I've got training in the morning. But like, I wanted to say that, you know, because um, <laughs> I would just get tired. Um, I don't know. I think my focus from a young age to make the Olympic team and be, you know, the best player I could be was so strong that I didn't really mind missing out on things. But definitely um, I know other teammates or girls I grew up with playing water polo who end up choosing life over sport um, because they do really miss out on, you know, going to 18ths and stuff like that 
also because we go away on tour for long durations of time as well. So you actually, you miss out on a lot of important events. Um, but yeah, like I said, I didn't really think I was missing out. And every time my alarm went off at like quarter past four in the morning, I'd just get straight up and I'd go. Like I wouldn't ever feel sorry for myself or anything. Um, also, my school and uni were really supportive. So when I was away on tours during exam periods or whatever, um, I was really like proactive in changing my exam times and I always um, had quite a lot of support. So I didn't really have to choose um, between, you know, pursuing uni or like school or anything either. So I think I'm lucky. With the the swimming aspect, you mentioned about getting up at quarter past four. Is that basically where you kind of join those swimmer schedules where, you you know, you're up at five just doing constant laps in a swimming pool for a couple of days a week? Yeah. yeah, well, I was always swimming early anyway when I was doing surf club. So the early mornings, like I've been doing since I was probably like 12. Um, my parents were like so stoked when I got my license finally because they didn't have to drive me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but... Um, I lived in Cronulla, like we've already um, established, and our training of a morning was at Sydney Olympic Park, which was a good like 45-minute drive. So um, I would, you know, training would start at 5 a.m. So I would have to set my alarm at like 10 past 4. I'd give myself like seven minutes before I had to be in the car. Um, And then I'd be, yeah, driving on the same road in the dark every morning. Wow. (laughs) Well, you beat the Sydney traffic. There's some positive, right? That's true. Yeah, until you have to come home in, like, school zones. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, are your parents basically forcing you at 16? Like, Ziggy, you're 16, get your L's. No. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, to get my L's, yeah. But my parents, um, they never, like, forced me to go to training as a kid. I would always have to set my own alarm and they'd be up and they'd be ready to take me to, like, to swimming if I wanted to go. But not once did they force me out of bed or anything. I was, if I didn't set my own, own alarm, they wouldn't wake me up. It was wow. always up to me. Wow. Yeah. I mind that drive because, like, I mean, when you do have that goal when, and I can imagine, you know, an Olympics is an amazing goal to kind of have to sort of get yourself to that point. And I think anyone who's had any form of goal like that in life would, would know what it's like. But, um, I mean, it, it's especially at that age because, you know, mm-hmm. you, you kind of are at that point in life where sleeping is such a wonderful thing. <laughs> but it's sort of, you know, eh, Olympics, sleep. Yeah, I can sleep after the Olympics, right? Yeah. Even now I can't sleep in past like 6.30. Wow. My husband goes crazy. I'm like, I'm up. It's daylight. I want to get out. I want to do something. Like, <laughs> Come on, like, come on. Relax. Yes. <laughs> the, the national competition in Australia, you know, playing for Cronulla, what, what is the national competition like? Is it, is it super competitive? Kind of how, how, how would you describe the national water polo competition in Australia? Yeah, so the Australian Water Polo League, um, yeah, it's pretty competitive. Um, compared with other countries, I will probably get hated for saying this, but I think the standard might be just a bit lower um, only because, like, there's girls in the National National League first-grade competition who, um, you know, only play during the season, season and then in the off-season they're not really playing water polo. So, um, you know the fact that they can still play first grade um, when they're only playing like a few months a year um, means that some teams have like, I don't know, there's quite a variety in teams. So generally in the league, there's maybe seven really strong teams who are all fighting for the finals top six spot. Um, And then there's always kind of like one or two teams who 
like a quiet week. Um, but the Australian Water Polo League as well has like a pretty good reputation internationally. So often we'll get some like world-class players who come out from America or from Spain or um, from overseas to play in the Australian Water Polo League. I think the lifestyle, you know, living here, um, the league goes through summer. So um, we do get like really world-class players coming to join us in the league, which definitely lifts the level a bit too. And is that on the flip side, is there opportunities for you to go and play in some of these European leagues in, in the other seasons? Yeah. Yeah. No, there is. I actually never played overseas, which is kind of like, honestly, probably like my biggest regret in life. Um, I, yeah, I never played overseas, um, but yeah, it's really popular actually. Um, either going to like an American college um, to join one of the college teams there um, or yeah, going over to Europe and playing um, in Hungary or Italy or yeah, Spain or anything. Yeah. Truly popular. My husband played three seasons in Greece and no, three seasons in Spain and two seasons in Greece when he was um, younger. So especially for the men, it's really popular. Well, I can imagine is that probably like a primetime televised sport in some of those countries I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So Jono showed me videos of like their games, just regular club games um, in Spain and Greece and everything. And there's, those like there's people in the crowd with flares. Wow! Um, like it throws off. He played um, for Chios, a small island in Greece, and he was like famous on the island because their like their island sport was water polo, and he was this blonde guy from Australia. He said he would just have like he'd just walk down the street and he'd have people coming up to him. Wow! And you know wanting to get photos and stuff. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean it's 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 so fascinating with with water polo kind of with any sport really that there are some countries that obviously take to it so much and kind of, you know, it's, it's an obsession and things like that. And yet you have other countries where kind of, you know, they're just sort of there to compete. And it's, it's interesting, particularly with the women's because you're talking about the States because the U S women's team are, you know, obviously very good, very strong rivals with Australia, of course. Um, and it's sort of, it's interesting how, you know, it also differs in the men and women's competition, like Australia in the men's is, you know, obviously not as successful in the Olympics as it has been for the women as well. So it's kind of interesting how that all works as well. Yeah. Yeah. USA in the women are definitely our arch rivals and they've been like pretty much unstoppable for the past eight years, the USA women. Um, yeah. No, they're good. With <laughs> playing for the Cronulla Sharks, I mean, are there, is there an affiliation with the NRL site? Um, no, not really. Just happen to have the same name. No. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, all the Cronulla teams generally are named the Sharks. Um, yeah. Like, I know that we're like trying to build some pool that's on land that's owned by the NRL team and all this stuff, but no, there's really no um, strong affiliation with them. But I, I, I guess you can't help living there, Cronel. Please tell me, Ziggy, you are an actual shark supporter, though, right? In the NRL. Oh, I am, but I actually don't live in Cronulla anymore. I live ah. in the eastern suburbs now. Oh, but yeah, I, I still am a shark supporter. No, of yeah, course. definitely. Good, good. That's that's what I like to hear. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, you know, we all live on 2016, but who cares? It was only four years ago. Come on. Uh, <laughs> no, no. We're still allowed to, to bask in that success and that glory days. You made the, the junior team, I believe, at, at 16 was your first time uh, playing for the, the junior team. I mean, getting that call up, getting that, uh, you know, call or whatever it was when you were eventually told that you get to pull on the green and gold. I mean, that must be a pretty special mm-hmm. feeling. Yeah. No, I do remember um, when on my first national tour to Canada, um, and yeah, oh, I was so excited, but even more crazy. So that year I didn't make the state team. So I 
drafted um, and played for ACT in the ACT team. And then from the competition when I was playing for like ACT, I got selected in the national squad and then I ended up being selected for the national team. So it's just like it was crazy that the very same year I didn't make the New South Wales team, I was playing for Australia Wow! in the age group. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I do remember being so excited and, yeah, went across to Canada played with the girls there it was good where about whereabouts in canada was was that held um we went to british columbia to that state um, that's where i am right now so i just thought i would uh oh, yeah 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 we, we played at the university of british columbia actually so was that um, is that do you remember if that's in victoria or vancouver at all do you remember because I'm in Victoria, I so, I mean, I know there's a bit of a UVic presence over here. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, UBC I presence. Yeah, uh, But I do know the Canadian national team train out of Montreal. So right. I've been to Montreal a few times. They always had, like, tournaments just before Christmas. So you'd be in Montreal and it'd be snowing and you'd have to get the train to the pool and they'd be walking across the snow. Um, and then you'd get inside the pool and it'd be so hot inside <laughs> and you'd have, like, have all your gear. Um yeah, so I know that's where the national team's based in Canada at the moment. It's a unique country, kind of how they are. They yeah. go about their their training and everything along those lines. Fascinating about how you had to go to the ACT to kind of make the the national team. I mean, were there then people on the team that maybe were people that you were playing with in New South Wales, and they're also going, "Hey, how did you make it? You you didn't make this. Like, how yeah. does that work?" Yeah, no, seriously. So after the tournament. Um, I was named in the Aussie squad and a few of the New South Wales girls weren't named in the Aussie squad and it was, like, real awkward because um, they were like, you didn't even make our team, like, you know. Um, I was like, sorry, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I ended up beating, again, more of those girls to make the final team in the end. So, um, yeah. Does the New South Wales team then kind of come begging back for you after you've represented Australia? Go, oh, see, we made a mistake. Please join our team. Bug ACT. Yeah. Yeah, they did, but it was too late by that stage. The tournament was already done. <laughs> right. And do you, but then do you all of a sudden go, well, you know, screw you guys. I'm going to compete for the ACT for the remainder of my uh, state career. No, because it was only like on an individual tournament basis. Right. So I just got put into the draft for that tournament. Um, so no, after that, I continued my New South Wales legacy. Um, but it was fun. Um, yeah, playing for a different state. So when you eventually then make the the senior side, the the Stingrays. Right now that was two thousand and nine. Stingers. Stingers, Stingers. Stingers. Sorry, Stingrays of the yeah. men's team, of course. Um, that was that round no, two. Oh, yeah. I I do my research very well We're on this show. Stingers. We're just Stingers. Don't stingers. worry, it's a common mistake. It's okay. I if in a, if I was a professional podcast host, I'd edit that out, but clearly I didn't. Um, two thousand nine, I believe, is when you first made the 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 Stingers, and, and again, is I mean, you've you've obviously already represented Australia, so you've kind of had that taste of, of doing that. But that is the goal, of course, is to make the, the senior side because that is one step closer to the Olympics. When you when you got that call, you made it there. Was was that kind of just a feeling of wow, this is this is happening? Like this is something now that I'm this much closer to making an Olympic team? Yeah. Um, so I was, yeah, added to the Olympic squad after a lot of girls retired after the 2008 Olympics. Um, and then so it was like going to training camps and everything. But, yeah, definitely when I got the call to make, um, it was the World League rounds was the first uh, national team that I was named in. Um, it was played in Adelaide. Um, I, yeah, I was so excited. And, like, mum and dad came with me to the airport and, like, getting the uniform and everything, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. But I was also, like, super scared and nervous. Like, the girls who I'd watched the year before at the Olympics, I was now, like, a teammate of theirs. 
Um, and I hadn't like really had much exposure to that level at all. Like I wasn't involved in the 2008 cycle really at all. So all of a sudden I was like teammates with all these girls I'd been watching on TV, you know? Um, so it was scary, but I was super excited. And, and how then do they treat the new kids on the team? Like, uh, is it kind of a, a bit of an initiation process? They kind of test you out to see how you are. Are they super accommodating? I mean, how is it when you first kind of get in a pool with them? No, the girls were actually so good. We had uh, like a leadership team in, in the squad full of the most experienced girls, or like three of the most experienced girls and the captain. So they were really good in like bringing you in and making you feel included and all of that. Um, yeah, no, there was no real initiation. I think the older girls were really accommodating. There was like a leadership team who made everyone feel pretty comfortable. Um, yeah, no, it was like everyone was really nice. I think most like a lot of the scariness and pressure and anxiety was just in my head. It wasn't definitely wasn't from the girls around me. With water polo, tell me about the positions, like, and how does that work? And you obviously then, do you have a specialised position? Are you versatile kind of like, what was your role on the team when you got selected for it? Yeah. So position wise, growing up, I was always um, a counter attacker. So, you know, my swimming speed was my strength. Um, so I was always getting like swimway breaks and everything. That was definitely, definitely what I was known for when I joined the national team. Um, but when I joined the national team, there was an opening as a center back. So a few of the center backs from the Beijing Olympics had retired. So I joined the national team and then the coach was like, all right, Ziggy, you're not just a counterattacker anymore. You are going to be a center back. And I'd never played center back before. Um, normally I was focused in scoring goals. But now my role was to, um, like, control the defence. Um, so I was not specialised in that position at all. So I had to learn a lot. Um, the centre-back marks the opposition's biggest player, um, the centre-forward, and you're, you're marking them closest to the goal. And the centre-forward is often the most dangerous player in the pool. So your role is to, um, yeah, call the defence if you need a zone, um, or if you want to press and it's pretty much just wrestle the biggest, strongest player in the other team the whole time and then sprint them up the other end of the pool when you're attacking. Um, so yeah, I all of a sudden found myself in like a controlling, um, important, really important role in the national team. So to begin with, I, um, struggled a fair bit, but, um, yeah, generally, it was nice learning a new position <laughs> and just gradually over time, you know, I learned my confidence. Um, I learned that I, even though I was like the youngest person in the team, I could make big calls and I could run the defense and things like that. So, um, and plus I still had like the counter attacking, it's like an attacking skill at my sleeve too. So, um, Yeah. But that's where the fun part of water polo comes into it, doesn't it, Ziggy? Because we all see during competitions that it's all well and good on top of the water with, you know, the fun swimming and the shooting and the goals and that. But it's always those underwater cameras that are seeing that you're punching and kicking and you're pulling each other's costumes aside and you're just, you're going to town. So, I mean, that I can imagine in that position is where you get to do all that fun stuff. So you've got to relish that opportunity to be a little bit aggressive. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Seriously, in centre back, you spend like 50% of the time under the water, just wrestling. Like like I said, the centre forward is normally the biggest, strongest person in the team and your role is to, like, 
not let them score. So you pretty much do whatever it takes. And, um, yeah, that is where a lot of the fun is, like, fun of it is. Um, gosh, it was, it's, like, so hectic. Centre-back's, like, the hardest position, I'm telling you. Well, do you have to, <laughs> with that, with your training cycle then, do you kind of have to add a couple of things in the gym, like maybe do a bit of boxing or yeah. something like that and kind of, you know, get yourself into a more physical mindset? Yeah, no, seriously. Um, we, like, your gym program is, like, also very catered to what position you are. So a lot of the like smaller um, perimeter players do more kind of power, agility kind of gym work, um, whereas the centre forwards and centre backs do more like absolute strength. Like it's very advantageous to be bigger and heavier and stronger, um, you know, so we would just do more really heavy weights um, and a lot more uh, like full-on wrestling in the pool as well during training. Yeah. It's kind of almost like an enforcer in ice hockey where kind of your role is, I guess, to be, you know, a little bit more physical, as you said, to kind of prevent someone from scoring. And and I, I can imagine that yeah. when you're competing, you know, for Australia, you're going around to these different competitions, you get to know the players from some of these countries and that. Who who were the ones that were the, the toughest when you were in that position to really kind of give it oh. to? Okay. So you, anyone who's listening, you need to get on Google right now and look up Casanova. Italy, water polo. Okay, you so keep talking. I'm going to Google polo. this while you're talking, Ziggy. Okay. So Casanova, she was the Italian centre forward and she is huge. And not only is she massive, like I'm saying like 120 kilos, but she's also ambidextrous. So she's primarily left-handed, but she's really good at also shooting with her right hand. So as a centre forward as well, that's um, really hard to mark in as a center back it's really hard to mark um because they can literally like they can step out or they can shoot with either hand um so i'd heard and i'd seen her play for many years um and then all of a sudden i had to mark her so that was really tough and she's like a really good swimmer too um anyway so she's probably she was probably my number one um when i first started the person who I was scared of the most. And she looks, I'm just um, looking at a picture here. She's, yeah, yeah. wow. And Jeez. she also, she broke her nose multiple times. So she often wore like a nose guard. So in a lot of the photos that you see online, she's in a nose guard and it made her look even scarier. <laughs> um, there's also the American center forward um, who I played against a lot. Her name's Cammy Craig. Um, skill wise and fitness wise, I'd say she's the, um, the person who really, you know, pushed me the most. I hated marking her, but at the same time, I loved marking her because she, like, I feel like she brought out the best in me, you know. Um, she's so skillful and I really had to, like, bring my A game when I was marking her, no doubt. Um, and because our, like, um, rivalry between the USA was so strong as well, um, often we'd either win by one goal or we'd lose by one goal and, like, I'd be marking her the whole game. So I really... Yeah, I kind of have, like, a really, like, good respect for Cammy Craig. Um, yeah. So they're probably two. Um, were there any ones that you oh, ever got up against and you were just like, oh, these, easy, come on, you know? And why And why was it New oh, Zealand? <laughs> New Zealand, oh, nah. Like, look, New Zealand were rough, but we would always beat them, like, convincingly. Um, there was a girl called Ologbo who is... Canadian actually and you know she split my eye open once and we used to always get really she was like just really dirty it was just like unnecessary um so I yeah so her and I would wrestle a lot 
Um, another girl, Demario, um, was her name from Italy. She was the captain of Italy. She was actually really small, um, but she would, again, she was just super dirty. Like she'd bite you and stuff. Wow. Um, and I used to mark her a fair bit as well. She was a really fast swimmer too. So her and I would just be like sprinting up and down the pool constantly. Um, I also kind of like am a bit known for getting people excluded. So I'd get in like, I'd get in front of them and duck and dive, but she would do the same thing to me. So DeMario um, is another one of those players <laughs> who I would definitely, um, yeah, wrestle with a lot. Um, and then there was also this Chinese girl. I can't say her name, but she was cap number five. She's left-handed. Um, and she was also a really fast swimmer. So um, her and I would just like kill each other going like sprinting up and down the pool. Um, but I'd say the, yeah, I'd say Cammy Craig from America was the player who I hated, but loved marking the most. Um, yeah. Just cause like I said, she would definitely bring out the best in me for sure. When you've got players literally biting you. <laughs> yeah. No, right. what, what is the line? Like what can and can't you do? Look, you're not allowed to bite people, but like. People do I mean, it. I wore a mouth guard, okay? <laughs> But yeah, but it does happen surprisingly um so it would just be like a low of lows but if you if the referee can't see it like you can pretty much do what you want you know well that's what you see so much particularly with the men's like i know like roy and hg had a big thing where they would kind of show the underwater cameras and you've got guys like going in for the nut grab and kind of things like that and as you said i guess if the the referee can't see it it's just up to the cameras to kind of replay it later on and go holy crap look what they're doing down there yeah so there's lots of things that are against the rules and it's frowned upon but um, yeah, there are still players that do get dirty when it's unnecessary as well. You know? And I guess you get to know um, them. So you would, I guess, be prepared like, oh, this person is clearly going to do that. So I've just got to be prepared to be ready for that. Yeah, that's right. Like um, this number five in uh, Japan. Oh, my God, not Japan, China. Number five from China. She broke my thumb when I was playing her once. Um, wow. We're actually in Brazil in the lead up to... Um, They had a tournament in the lead up to the Olympics, like a good maybe eight months out of the Olympics. And I was holding her cosy and I was defending, holding her, holding her, holding her. And she was pulling my thumb back. But at this stage, I think we were only like one goal up and it was like really like I wasn't going to let her go, you know. And so she just kept pulling my thumb back and just she just pulled it right back and she broke my thumb. So, you know, it was my own fault. I was holding her. And as she was doing it, I was like, I'm not letting go. So she was like, okay, I'm just going to pull your thumb harder. So, like, wow, you know, I didn't like her for it, but it was my own fault, you know. So what's the scope with the referee? I mean, how difficult would it be to be a referee in water polo then if a lot of the fouls clearly go unseen and you just kind of just have to go for what you do see? Yeah, I think the refs have a hard role. Um a lot of the time I feel like they call what they think is happening, um, but it's not necessarily happening. I don't know. I Growing up playing water polo with international referees um, just teaches you what they look for and what they don't. Um, so, you know, I often would... Um, kind of use that to my advantage, I suppose. Um, like I would pretend that someone's holding me, but it was really 
like I would have my legs wrapped around them so that they're on my back, but it would be me getting them in a position that looked like they were on top of me, you know? Um, but again, those play, uh, everyone at the international level knows what things look like on the outside. So it's just, um, yeah, everyone kind of learns what works. So it's kind of like how, how soccer players are known for diving where it looks quite terrible because clearly they're faking it in water polo. Yeah you uh, may be faking it, but you at least make it look realistic enough where you're not on the ground. Oh, I'm so injured because you've got water underneath you to kind of help you out with your acting. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So I would like be swimming and then I'd cut in front of someone and then I'd be like shuffling around a little bit. Meanwhile, they're still swimming and they end up kind of on your back and then it looks like they're really pulling me, but I'm just pretending that they're pulling me and then next minute I get them kicked out. But, you know, so they (laughs) they might not be pulling me, but... If that's what it looks like to the ref, then that's what it looks like to the ref, you know? And is it a sport where you get to know certain referees and go, oh, shit, they're refereeing me today. We're not in with a chance and things like that? Um, In, like, the Australian League, I know there was refs who I preferred who would um, give me uh, the result that I was after and others who would just ignore ignore it or they'd call a turnover against me or something um internationally not so much um however this might be controversial as well but FINA is run by like the Italian water polo league kind of thing so I always feel like versing Italy was um hard no matter what referee you had just because like the head referee was Italian you know um yeah, so it wasn't really referees in particular. It was just always versus Italy. You'd always get the short straw, I feel. That's why Italians, um, you know, the whole diving thing and everything, like I'm still not over the 2006 World Cup, Ziggy. So to me, Italy diving, water, it just all fits. You know, <laughs> Yeah, because just... it's Fina, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It all fits. When 2012 comes, you get that mm-hmm. confirmation that you were going to the Olympics. Tell me, Tell me how that Oof. felt. Yeah, I remember. So I was at the gym at Sydney Olympic Park and we knew that that day we were going to get a call at some stage to tell us whether we were in or we were out. So I was at the gym in the morning and I didn't expect the call to come at like 6.30 in the morning. But anyway, I finished my gym set and I had a missed call from the head coach. Um, And so I had to call him back, but it was really weird as well. So I called him back, but I was at the end of my gym session, I was like kind of standing by myself and he told me that I'd made the team um, and then I kind of was like, no one was around. So I like was like so excited, but I was standing by myself and it was like, oh, like, thanks, you know, and he was like, congratulations. And then I kind of ended the phone call and I was like, like, I don't know, like, this is weird. I'm like by myself. <laughs> and then I like call my mom and I'm like, oh, mom. <laughs> anyway, so it was all a bit weird, but I do um, remember seeing his call um and being like oh my god and like as I was calling the coach back I knew that like within one minute I'd know like my fate wow um but it was it was incredible and um you know a lot of people after that call they were like surely you would have known you know um and I definitely hoped and I'd been playing really well and I was you know I played in every major tournament every tournament in the lead up but it wasn't until the actual team was announced that I kind of was 
actually thinking I was going to make it, you know. But then even still, you've got six weeks before the game starts. So I was super scared that I was going to get injured in that six weeks as well. Um, yeah. And I can imagine everything in between that period because, you know, you've you've received a uniform before that says Australia on it. You know, you've represented your country, but all of a sudden you get this beautifully crafted suit with the Olympic rings mm-hmm. on it, you know, a, a ticket. I'm sure you're probably in business class on Qantas on the way to London, like just all these little perks you get. No, as an, okay, you weren't. Oh, no, come on, Qantas. So we, <laughs> so we um we were in we were in Europe for like a training camp and like some few like little tournaments in the lead up. So I think we went from Italy to London, but no, we definitely did not fly first class. Definitely, oh my gosh, in the lead up to the Rio Olympics, we our flight got cancelled. Um, we were flying from Europe to Rio via. I don't even know some other country, and our flight got cancelled, and so we missed. So then we missed the connecting flight, and then we're in a hotel for like three hours overnight and then we had to go back to the airport like it was just a disaster getting to the olympics so no on the way home we get a chartered flight well i was gonna say surely as a medalist (laughs) on the way back you get a special flight (laughs) yeah on the way back we were on the chartered flight and because we got a bronze medal we were in premium economy oh Um, what do you get if you get a gold medal (laughs) you're in first class of course you're in first class (laughs) yeah um and then Silver is in business class and then bronze is in premium economy and then everyone else is in just the normal economy seats. Um, yeah, so my boyfriend at the time, husband now, was like sitting back in economy in like the second last row and he's like six <laughs> foot five, you know, I'm like stretched out in premium economy. It was great. I love, I love <laughs> this tiered system on the way back. It's kind of like gold medal, let's get up the very pointy end, silver there, bronze there. Yeah. The rest of you get up yeah. the back. You suck. You're shame in but, Australia. <laughs> yeah, but the premium economy was like the best place to be because all of like the chef demission and, you know, all the really important people were also in first class and business class. So all of those athletes, they like really had to behave themselves. But those in premium economy, it was like us, it was the um, the basketballers. Um, I think maybe the men's hockey team was there. I don't know. Like It was like all the team sports and there was no like really important people in our area. So that's where all the fun was. Fantastic. Wow. I, I mean, disappointed <laughs> not on the way over there, but, I mean, that's kind of a, a fun little thing there. But, I mean, I, I'm someone who likes to keep every single keepsake I have when I do something that I feel is important to that. Are yeah. you keeping everything? Like if you've got an envelope with the Olympic logo on it, like your ticket, like do you keep all yeah. of that? Yeah. Um. So I like I gave a few. So, okay. So uniform wise, you get like a few multiples of t-shirts and stuff. Like you get a lot of stuff. Like a lot, a lot of stuff. Um. So a few of those things I would give to my cousin or, you know, I would sign stuff or leave, like take one to a school and give it to the primary school or something like that. Or to like one of my junior coaches, I gave him one of my hats and things like that, but it still leaves a lot of gear. And yeah, I've got it all Um, just like stored away in bags and stuff, but I definitely am not going to throw it out. For sure. Um, But then with two Olympics for myself and two Olympics for my husband, like we don't have enough room to like store it all. So <laughs> we've like practically left a few at our parents' houses, a few bags of gear. Um, but literally every time I go home, they're like, we don't want it here. I'll take it. I'm like, we don't have room in our apartment for like all this stuff. Like it's incredible how much gear you get. Um, and then also like 
I mean, bits and pieces of it I wear, but a lot of it is like bright yellow with Australian Olympic team like all over it that you don't really like wear it. So it kind of just sits there. It's a bit of a waste. Mm, yeah. I mean, but there's no way to throw it out. No. <laughs> it was good that you can kind of, like as you said, give it to sort of like a junior coach, like go back to your school and give yeah. it to things like that. Because, I mean, that's where like if any anybody who obviously everyone's go to school, but like if, if you've ever been at school where say you've had someone go on to the Olympics, like it's a big deal. Your school's very proud that you've had a student go on to the mm-hmm. Olympics. So I can imagine that, yeah, your schools that you've attended, you know, here, here's a framed shirt from Ziggy. She's off to the London Olympics. Yeah, and we got, we'd get like my teammates to all sign it as well. But I tell you what the best thing that I did was so there's I've got an Australian flag similar to the one behind you a huge one and um, on the flight on the way back from the Rio Olympics I sent it around to all of the seats in the plane so this was a chartered a chartered flight um, full of Australian Olympians so pretty much everyone in the Australian Olympic team has signed one of those big flags which wow. I have that's cool. incredible yeah. that's that's yeah, amazing I remember I remembered signing one um, and thinking it was a really good idea on the way back from the London Olympics. So I packed one ready and did the same thing. Um, and then I had a little note, please return to seat, you know, 14B <laughs> or whatever. Um, so got everyone's signatures, which is cool. And let's be honest, the Campbell sisters tried to sign it, but they failed. So um... <laughs> I wonder, I, I don't know. A bit of a, I, a fun joke we love on this show. Hello to the Campbell sisters. Okay. I'm sure you're listening. Um, when <laughs> With the whole experience like the Olympics, like, your your water polo started, I believe, a couple of days after the opening ceremony. So, and I know sort of like some of the swimmers and some of the people who compete the next day don't go because they're all in training mode. What is what about the water polo players? Do you go to the opening ceremony? Yeah, so both Olympics we went to the opening ceremony. Um, the men's tournament started the day after, um, and the women's tournament we started. We had our first round game two days after the opening ceremony, um, and so both Olympics we walked. Um, we walked around, but for all athletes, there's the option of leaving um, like halfway through. So it wouldn't be a really late night. We'd do our big walk. We'd get to like kind of hang out in the middle for, I don't know, an hour. And then we'd kind of sneak out a side door um, and we didn't have to stay for the whole duration. So we did that both times, which I think was incredible. Like having that moment to walk out um, with your teammates and look at the crowd and like, you know, in the, in the Olympics leading up when I was younger, I would go to sleep and then mum would wake me when, like, the opening ceremony was on TV and I'd watch it all live. So for me, um, oh, walking out in the opening ceremony was, like, incredible. Because yeah, to me, like, making the Olympics, and it's sadly something I'm never going to get to do, but, like, you know, <laughs> inbuilt dream of mine that I can internalise, you know, mentally. But, like, to me, a whole part of that experience would be the opening ceremony. And I, I hear these stories of the swimmers who are, you know, doing the heats the next morning and I just feel so like like that's such an experience you miss out on. Is it is it a case of do you know if these guys are sort of forced like they can't like if one of them says bugger it, I don't care if I am getting up the next morning at whatever time, I am walking out in that stadium or are they kind of forced not to because of mm-hmm. that fact? I think it's a decision which is made by your team. Like I don't think there'd be a swimmer who would go against the decision of, like, the Australian swim team and would go and do it anyway. Um, Before you leave for the opening ceremony, outside of your, like, Australian residence within the village, um, even if people aren't going to the opening ceremony, those athletes still get dressed in their their opening ceremony outfit. 
um, the Australian Olympic team meets together before we get on the buses and head to the stadium. Um, and we like, we have our own little um, celebration out the front of the Australian yeah, residents. And then I know that when we all went to the opening ceremony, those who stayed behind, um, yeah, still did something special. Um, I mean, of course, it wouldn't be to the level of excitement of actually walking out into the stadium, but, you know, it's even getting in your uniform and in, you know, the nice jacket and everything and being with everyone else in the team before they left. Like, I think that's really nice. Your boyfriend at the time, now husband, obviously competed with you at London. Uh, Is it more of a case of you want to hang out with him to share that with him? Are you more with your teammates? Is it a bit of both? How, How does all that work? Just the opening ceremony or the whole? Let's go Let's go with both. Let's go with opening and the whole um, games. So the men's and women's water polo tournament uh, competition is played over the full two weeks of the Olympics. The men play on alternate days to the women. So, like, we didn't really hang out much because the days that I would have a game, he would be training, and then the day that he had a game, I'd be training and, and whatnot. So, like, I would see him, like, at the dining hall maybe um, – but, like, I never went to watch one of his games in real life or anything like that. Um, for the opening ceremony, like, a lot of, um, like, a lot of teammates in the men and women, like, grew up together and stuff as well. And, like, we were the Australian water polo team. So, um, like, I walked out with my girls' teammates, but the guys were, like, all around. And so there were definitely parts of the walk and part of the opening ceremony experience that I had with him. Um, but yeah, once the Olympics starts, um, like I didn't really see him much actually. Yeah. You're just with your team the whole time. Like even in your day off, you're training, you've got video sessions, you've got physio. Um, yeah. Like recovery, all of this. So like it's, it's a busy time for a full two weeks. Which yeah. I think kind of, I mean, particularly for, as you're saying, water polo goes for the the entire two weeks of the games. I yeah. mean, it's it's obviously a very busy time. And, and it, can you, with that time, though, fully, I guess, experience life as an Olympic athlete in an Olympic village? I mean, you know, obviously mm. you're, you're kind of in this facility with the, the greatest athletes in the world. I mean, you, you know, you bump, rub shoulders, you know, same Bolt's there, you know, th- these big-name athletes are there, Michael Phelps, these sort of people. I mean, is it a case of do you spend some days just walking around with your teammates, you know, star-spotting, like, oh, my God, there's the same Bolt or things like that? Like, is that part of that yeah. whole experience? It is, yeah. So, like, just when you go to the dining hall, it's like an adventure just going to get food. Like, firstly, the Olympic Village is massive, so – walking to the dining hall and walking back from the dining hall like if you're doing that three times a day or more to get snacks like you end up walking like a lot of steps so in Rio there was actually like a little shuttle bus that you could get on and it would take you to the dining hall um but yeah it's so fun and exciting just um yeah seeing like um Venus and Serena Williams and you know Usain Bolt and things like that so yeah I mean we I never really approach them, but definitely I'd see them around and it would get really exciting. But you it was said also never really, Ziggy. Cool. Really, come on, there was must have been one there that you sort of did. I feel like there's someone you did. So, so, yeah, I mean, there was one time where two of my teammates were talking to, like, Venus and Serena Williams, and then I kind of, like, went over and, you know, tried to be a part of it. But generally, like, we were quite conscious that they are busy and they're there to compete as well. So, um, yeah, I, we, like you don't really, but I definitely would admire from afar a lot. 
Um, I think the Brazilian building must have been close to our building at the London, no, at, uh, at one of the Olympics. Because at one of them, I saw Usain Bolt around a lot because I think their residence was like just across the, the road from us. Um, so that was fun. But it's cool going to the dining hall because you see athletes that are like four foot five um, and you're like, oh, a diver or a gymnast. And then you see athletes that are like so tall and you're like, oh, my God, basketball or volleyball. And then there's so many different body shapes and um, there's just – oh, it's just incredible that you're just admiring people the whole time. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I swear the two things everybody only ever asks about when they talk to a, an Olympic athlete about their experience is free McDonald's and the amount of condoms. And, I mean, that, that doesn't fascinate <laughs> me at all. It's All I care oh, about right. is, like, all the other free stuff you get. Like, I mean, who gives a shit about – condoms are free anyway and McDonald's, like, I mean, yeah, everyone eats it. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, was funny at the beginning of at the beginning of the olympics there's like no one in the maccas line there's like the coach the odd coach who's in the maccas line but then at the end of the olympics like (laughs) the maccas line is like 20 meters long like five tellers going like (laughs) it's so funny to see the maccas area just get busier and busier as people stop competing it's so funny and i mean all the other services i mean one thing that was the only time i've ever actually had the chance to experience anything like that i I worked at the commonwealth games two years ago and i got a tour of the athletes village and it it was fascinating because like i didn't realize things like there's there's hairdressers there and there's you know like a, a phone shop to like help out the athletes who want to get like you know sim cards and things like that so i mean all that kind of stuff that's there i mean is that all free for you guys like are you able to just walk yeah. in and get whatever you want at any time yeah so pretty much everything's free i think only like the like olympic memorabilia store you'd have to buy something yeah so you just go to the dining hall you just grab like whatever you want out of the fridge um you have to like scan a little barcode thing um yeah it's all really it's all free which is just crazy and even there was like a games room at both olympics where you could go and um they'd have like kind of like a time zone ish area um so i was like so excited to hear from my teammates about the tokyo olympics i can i can only imagine yeah. what kind of stuff have in their village um yeah because it's like there's a lot going on it's pretty cool it's a really cool place it's i mean a question that's kind of probably a, a deep question you don't have to go into super detail with it because obviously we know big difference i guess between london and, and rio in terms of so many things in terms of how the games are put on but was yeah. there when you got to rio after your experience in london just in that games village aspect you know was it a bit of a shock? Was there a huge difference? Kind of how could you compare those two experiences at both those villages? Um, like, I mean, Rio was still incredible. Um, just like the, just the size of the Rio village and everything was just mind-blowing. Um, but you did like, I don't know if it was because the media made you aware of it more that you were looking out for it, but you did notice that things weren't done. Like even – you know, like the toilet seat wasn't fixed to the toilet. So you'd sit on the toilet seat and would like fall off the toilet. Or like when we got in there, like there was no shower curtain, but like the rest of the apartment was great. But like just things like that just weren't um, finished. And also, yeah, but like saying that, it was still incredible. Um, yeah, maybe because it was my second Olympics as well, maybe the whole um, new overwhelming like feeling wasn't there for the second games I suppose entering the village like I kind of knew what to expect but definitely um the London Olympic Village walking in like it was way bigger than what I ever thought it would be um 
it was just really different to what I imagined. And it's really hard to describe to people who haven't been there themselves. Like think of like these new suburbs that you see, like there's one at Zetland um, and like mascot around the areas from here, like just buildings and buildings of brand new areas with brand new grass and footpaths and everything. It's like that, but like on steroids. It's crazy. With the competition side of things, what's the expectation like going into London? Because Australia had made the semifinals at every single Olympics. You'd, you'd obviously had two medals, a gold in Sydney and a, a bronze in Beijing. So clearly yeah. I, I can imagine high expectations for you to at least make the final four. Was that the goal? Was that purely the goal, make the final four and then get whatever? Or was gold, was like gold the absolute yeah. sight that you had in London? Definitely gold gold was on all of our minds um in both olympics um yeah so australia we'd like been in the semi-final at every major tournament in the lead up most tournaments it was usa and us in the final um and yeah consistently we were yeah top three for sure um but i think in the lead up to london like usa would only beat us like 65 percent of the time and then, you know, 40, for like 35 or 40% of the time we'd be beating them. So we knew, we kind of thought, and I think a lot of the other countries kind of thought as well that it would be us and USA in the final. Um, but it just so happened that Spain drew with USA in the rounds. And so we ended up having to play them in the semi as opposed to in the final um, and then lost to them in extra, extra time. So, um, yeah, it was always gold, both Olympics. You're not you're not hoping for a bronze or a medal or to make the quarterfinals or anything. It's like you want to win a gold medal. Yeah. Which all came down to that draw. It's so fascinating because obviously you guys went undefeated in, in the group stage, uh, you know, until you got to that semi. But unfortunately, you know, as you said, the draw kind of put USA in that semi. W- what is it like backing up such a disappointment mm. of losing a semi final, knowing that you can't, you're not guaranteed a medal. Um, you know, you, you've then got to back it up and come out and, and play that bronze. What What is that period like from losing to then having to go up against Hungary and try and fight for a bronze? Yeah, that was a really tricky time. Like your dream is just taken away from you, but you still have a job to do. Um, yeah, we were like devastated, especially because we came so close and to finish fourth would be like the absolute worst. So, um, luckily, I suppose for me, but a lot of the girls um, in the team from the Beijing Olympics had also lost in their semifinal and they went on to win the bronze. So they were experienced in that area as well. And, you know, we kind of, um, our coaches and our teammates and everyone kind of let us dwell in it for like maybe two hours. Then we had our team meeting and then it was just done. And after that team meeting, like the next goal was on and we had to win the next game. Like we weren't coming home with nothing, you know? Um, But yeah, it's a really weird time when you've just, when you're so devastated, but you still have a bronze medal that you've got to go and win. So I think the team that bounces back after that loss, um, no matter on your skills, the team that bounces back and is focused for the next game first, I think are going to be the ultimate bronze winners. I think, I think on the podium, the bronze medal winners are like the happiest out of everyone because you like come away with the medal. Whereas if you're in the final, you're like guaranteed a medal already, you know? Which, I mean, that's what I've always thought would be an interesting thing in these sports in the Olympics where you have the semis and the final because, yeah, like as you said, you want a gold medal. Of course you want a gold medal, but you win a semi final no matter what, 
you're going to be an Olympic medalist, which would be a very special feeling in itself. But that yeah. bronze final, like, as you said, you don't want to finish fourth. You don't want to walk yeah. away with nothing. So I feel like you would have extra motivation going into a bronze medal final than you would for a gold medal final. Yeah, seriously. Uh, like going into that bronze medal game and we actually won the bronze medal in um, – was it penalties? Oh, my God. I, like, oh, far out. We won it in penalties. But even our quarterfinal, we won in penalties against China as well. So you can win all three of your round games and then go into the quarterfinal. And if you lose your quarterfinal, you're playing for bottom six, like playing from six to 12th, you know. Um, so the quarterfinals really nerve-wracking as well. Um, oh, gosh. All these emotions are coming back to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just quickly so on. This is, it's, it's. I don't know if no, this we is... didn't win in penalty shootout. We won in extra in overtime. Right, it's yeah. it's a fascinating in, in sports where you have these fifth and sixth playoffs and seventh and eighth playoffs. Like at that point, do you even give a shit? Like I mean, oh god, we're going to finish seventh, not eighth. Like who cares? No, you do, <laughs> you do. Like we came sixth in Rio. Um, we we lost that quarterfinal in a penalty shootout, far out. Um, and then we had to play for fifth and sixth, and we lost that last game. And it's like you do really care. It's almost like you go into the game just wanting to prove it to yourself and prove it. Like your parents have come and, like, your fans have come from, like, across the other side of the world to watch you, that it's like you just want to prove it to everyone that it was worthwhile and that the four years, like, yeah, you definitely still want to finish on in a, on a win, yeah. When you got that bronze medal around your neck, though, what what is that moment like? <laughs> yeah, crazy. Oh, I've never been so proud in my life. And just standing on the podium, holding my teammates' hands, looking into the sta- like into the stand, and seeing my family and like two of my best friends, and oh yeah. It was incredible. And is it then the games are over, you not only can you let your hair down, you can let your hair down with the bronze medal around your neck. I mean, what 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 are the yeah. the, the remainder of the games like? Then do you just do you never take that off around your neck? Yeah. Well, we did wear it out that night. We all had like a big dinner and then we went out and it's actually really heavy. So like and also with the swimmers as well, we all had like a fair bit of chafe around our neck where the swimmers would sit. Um, and then the really heavy like metal. So we wore it around and it was like weighing us down. But no, you don't take it off. And it's not even weird not to take it off. Like after people win their medals, you see medals around the village. Like, okay, it's not that common because it's rare to win a medal, but you see like I remember that the first time I saw someone wearing their gold medal around. Like it's like a, it's not frowned upon at all to wear your medal around the village. So we just wore it nonstop. Like you wear it with such pride. Michael Phelps must walk around with a bloody sore neck. Yeah, seriously, we saw some people with like multiple medals, and it's incredible. <laughs> this would you'd be in the dining hall, and you'd like want to go up and just look. <laughs> well, it reminds me yeah. of like we all remember in our school carnivals when you would have the ribbons, right? And for about two or three days, you'd be wearing yeah. like all your ribbons on your shirt. Yeah, no, and I've got my medal. It's in my other room. I well, but, um... I, I remember during our Survivor interview, I, I asked you about that. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're welcome to go and get it now if you want to. I can take a screenshot this time because that didn't work last time when I got the screenshot. So maybe uh. we can do that in just a second. But two things I always love to actually ask about medalists when we get on this show. The first one, I mean, is where you keep your medal. So you, you kind of have it on display. Is that kind of what you have it on at your house or? Mm, it's not on display, but it's not packed away either. Just... um. 
just in one of the drawers in its little case, um, easily accessible, but it's not on display, I wouldn't say. The other thing is, Ziggy, and be honest with me, I want you to be completely honest with me with this, this ah, question. Okay. Did you ever try and get free shit with it when you're either in London or Australia? Do you kind of like sneakily, you know, go to your local restaurant and be like, hey, I'm an Olympic medalist, give me a free fucking drink or something like that? <laughs> No, I never did. I feel like I should have used oh, that. Oh, definitely. God. More you need, more people. <laughs> Olympians, listen to this show. Get free stuff. You're a medalist. You deserve free <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Maybe I should bring it out. I'll, like, bring it out over the weekend. You should have brought it as a survivor. They, they wouldn't have voted you out then. That's an idol that they wouldn't, you know, yeah, <laughs> they wouldn't get you to play. Go, go, I want to see the medal. Okay. I want to get a screenshot. Can All you? Right. Can you? Okay. I'm excited for this. I'll do that. Because I have seen <laughs> it before. I, I know this on the Oz Network that uh, – Ziggy did get it out when I, I asked for it, but I think in the midst of taking a screenshot, something happened with my computer, so I ultimately never got that. And anyone listening to this show knows that I have this weird obsession with seeing the the medals because I, for one, would never take the bloody thing off. So that's how I'd go. All right. Oh, here we go. Okay, now hold that up for me. I'm going to do this screenshot again. This is great for the podcast. All right, and beautiful. Let's see if that worked. The thing I actually really like about the uh, – oh, beautiful, that worked a treat. I love the London medal. I think the London medal is one of the the, the better-looking medals we've had in the last uh, few Olympics, the purple ribbon and kind of the shape of it and all that sort of stuff. Do, yeah, I mean, it's very nice. Did you did – you, once you wore that, you're sort of saying you're wearing it back and wearing it in the village and all that sort of stuff. How – did you ever just want to not take it off? Um, I don't feel like even if it's not on my neck, it has no value, you know? So, I mean, I like love it, but it doesn't have to always necessarily be on me, <laughs> you know? Like I definitely, like, like I said, a lot of my uniform is like stored in my parents' house or whatever, but like this will never just be left at their house. Like I always want this to be around, but it doesn't have to be on me. <laughs> what about your, uh, well, again, now husband, then boyfriend at the time? I mean, obviously he'd be very proud of you, of course, for, for having a medal, but uh, is, is there sometimes like, you know, if maybe you have a disagreement or something like that, that you can just whip out the medal and be like, hey, hey, shut up. I've got one of these. You don't. You know, you clean the dishes tonight. Yeah, I should. I should use it more. But no, I've never used it against him, but it does come up in conversations a lot, actually. Um yeah, he brings it up more than what I do. Go really? Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have one. <laughs> Which, I mean, so. I guess it doesn't change you as a person, but, I mean, for, for, from that point on, you were forever known as an Olympic bronze medalist. I mean, what does that mean to you? That If you go to one of these schools and, you know, you're doing a talk to the students or something like that, you are introduced as Ziggy, Olympic bronze medalist. I mean, you are forever changed in that point that your name slightly has a bit of an addition to it from that point. Yeah. No, I feel proud. Um, and even only like two years ago, it became official that you could have O-L-Y after your name in the title um, as well. So it's like an official title these days to be an Olympian, let alone an Olympic medalist. So, no, I feel proud. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, you, you sort of a couple of years after that, uh, you know, world championships, of course, um, you got a medal there. Fortunately, it wasn't gold, yeah. but it was a different color. It was still silver. I mean, it's it was silver. better than bronze, <laughs> right? I mean, that uh, uh, does that rank sort of up there with coming away with an Olympic medal that you've got a world championship silver? Yeah, the world champ silver was actually really cool because that was played at Barcelona World Champs um, in 2013 and we played Spain in the final. So... The vibe, like I've never played in a game 
so loud. Like the Spanish crowd are already such water polo fanatics. So to be playing Spain in the final at the World Champs in Spain was just crazy. Our game was at like 11 p.m. at night, firstly, which was wow. hectic. But um, there was uh, the stadium was kind of built on um, like a temporary stand, like grandstand. So like all of the um, crowd, like all of the Spanish crowd, were like stomping on the stadium. They all had whistles. Um, it was just crazy. Like you couldn't hear yourself think. You couldn't like communicate to your teammates in that final because the crowd, like when we were. When we wanted to communicate, you couldn't. When Spain had the ball, they were like dead silence. Um, but that was just a really cool experience to play Spain in Spain in the World Champs. It was, yeah, it was cool. Because is it a sport with the crowd that, you know, it, it kind of it helped or it hinders? You were talking about the communication there. But, I mean, I mean, how does the crowd play a factor in a game of water polo? Yeah, like communicating in water polo is really important and it's already hard because – um, like you spend half the time like under the water when you're wrestling. Um, so communication is already something that everyone, all teams need to work on. But then when you're trying to communicate and the crowd's being really loud, like it's actually so hard, like it's almost impossible. So in that game, we were like splashing each other, trying to get each other's t- attention. Um, we really had to like think outside the square and like we were pointing a lot more. Um, but then if someone isn't looking at you, then you can't, like, they literally couldn't hear you. So it was really hard. Um, yeah, but it was, like I said, it was, like, a really cool experience. With yeah. Rio, um, you know, you touched on it before, unfortunately, eliminated at the quarterfinals. You guys lost a, a game in the group stage to Italy, which kind of put you, I guess, on a bit more of a difficult path in those quarterfinals. It seemed to be a bit of a trend, though, in, in Rio that um, so many of our, our team sports kind of just had this trend of quarterfinal defeats. I remember when we were covering the games, it was like, ah, oh, another quarterfinal loss for Australia. I mean, that obvious answer is that it was disappointing but I mean do you take anything out of that experience from from Rio that you can take as a positive at all um hmm. yeah it was really it was actually so disappointing like we had such high hopes to medal again um again we had our eyes set on gold for the Rio Olympics and leading into that tournament um you know we'd done a a lot of work on bonding together as a team. Um, I felt like we did everything right. And like, you know, you're brought up being told that if you train hard and you like, if you do all the right things, you'll get the result that you want. Let it, like, but we didn't get the result that we wanted, but I actually can't like think of anything where we made shortcuts or like, you know, it was just unbelievable. Like when we didn't make it, it was kind of like, this isn't supposed to happen. Like we've done everything that we, like that we could um so initially it was really shocking but I think the fact that I'm so um confident and like satisfied that we did that like I did everything that I could has kind of made it easier I suppose yeah like there's no real positive I can take out of it (laughs) not gonna lie but it's like it hasn't um like devastated me because I knew that we did everything that we could. Um, it just kind of ripped that fairy tale idea out of my head. <laughs> yeah. Did you go into Rio knowing that, that that would be it, that you were planning to retire afterwards, or did that decision come after the Games? Um, I went in not knowing, 
going like going into the London Olympics, I knew for sure that it wasn't that I was going to go again. You know, um, I went into Rio. I wasn't. I didn't really have any plans afterwards. Um, I was kind of just focused on Rio, and that was it. Um, it wasn't kind of until afterwards where you have a bit of a break after the games where I like the break went really fast and all of a sudden it was time to go back to training and I wasn't ready to go back to training yet. Um, and then, yeah, like, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know leading into Rio that it would be my last. Um, so I kind of just, yeah, decided afterwards, I suppose. Which... Yeah. So definitely when I was, yeah, definitely when I was playing my last game at the Olympics, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is my last game with the national team. Like, no way. That definitely wasn't on my mind at the time. Which I can imagine um, it must make this period right now very interesting, more so obviously now that we've got a, a delay for the Olympics. But, I mean, how mm-hmm. when when an Olympics gets closer and, and you realise that, hey, this is when I would be feeling like this or kind of getting prepared and that sort of stuff, does it – do you have moments where you kind of rethink like, oh, you know, what what if? Like, what if I had continued on for another cycle or are you completely just, cool, that was a great part of my life now, let's move on to the next chapter? Um, I mean, every four years is a long time and being like a female as well, like I'm pregnant right now and – I always wanted to have kids relatively young, you know. So I think um, after an Olympics, when you're deciding if you, like, want to go on or not, like, you definitely take things like career or um, family life into consideration because, yeah, four years is a long time. And then those now who those four years are turning into five years, um, and even that isn't a certainty, um, I definitely, yeah, think it would be hard. Um yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that if you're going to commit to one or two extra years, you might as well go the extra four, you know, like I, not many people just commit to the world champs the year after and then retire after that. Have there been any Australian three-time Olympic water, water polo female players? Yeah, so my teammate um, Bronwyn Knox, she has been to three already um, and she's currently in the national team again, so she's looking to go to her fourth. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible, mm. which, I mean, goes back to that yeah. sort of thing we are talking about, the age thing before that. I mean, any, no matter what sport, if you can go to four Olympics, that's that's an absolutely incredible achievement. I mean, going to one Olympics is an incredible achievement, but, uh, yeah. you know, four is, I mean, that just is an incredible for a sport like water polo. Yeah, and then there was a few of my teammates in Rio as well who were three-time Olympians, um, but Bronnie is the first female in Australia to go for her fourth. Yeah. And are you sort of still uh, in touch? Do you kind of, you know, follow follow the team closely still and kind yeah. of watching their form and everything heading into Tokyo? Yeah, I love watching the girls. I'm still really good friends with heaps of the girls in the team. Um, yeah, but even though I've retired from the sport and I am not currently playing even club water polo, I still love following it. So um, whenever they're playing major tournaments or even if they're just playing an international game that's being live streamed, I'm like, on Twitter or I'm watching the live stream. Um, yeah, I love watching them and supporting the girls. And how is the state of the sport in Australia? Like, I mean, is I mean, I guess every sport you could say, you know, more funding would be fantastic, more competitors, all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, where, where yeah. Australia is now compared to 20 years ago when we were just about to win an Olympic gold medal in the sport, I mean, how, how would you consider the state of water polo right now in Australia? Ooh. Um... <sighs> I definitely know that the funding isn't where it used to be um, with water polo. So, oh, I don't know, back back years ago, we'd have a lot of um, residential camps where the team was together 
for long durations of time, mostly in Canberra at the AIS there. Um, these days, the training is kind of just based out of your own state. Um, the girls have had a lot of like a few a few stints together, but definitely not um, they they're like not living together, which used to kind of happen more um, due to funding. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's tricky, like especially team sports. You get more funding when you get the results, and then if you're not getting the results, and you don't get more funding, so it's hard. It's kind of like a lose lose or a win win kind of situation. Um, yeah. So I don't think it's projecting up. <laughs> if anything, I think the state of water polo is like just leveled, um, maybe slightly going down in terms of funding, but. Hopefully, if the girls and the boys get a good result, then hopefully it'll start rising again. The positive, though, Ziggy, that I will say in terms of that potential projected up uprise is, of course, uh, Australia bidding for the 2032 Games. Now, yeah. if Australia hosts the Olympics, obviously the funding kind of goes up a little bit because we want to have a good showing at the home game. So, you know, fingers crossed for that Southeast Queensland bid 2032, the money will come flowing in. Oh, yeah, I'm hoping for that. Yeah, no, I kind of feel a bit responsible for the funding going down. Like the fact that we got six in Rio meant that the next cycle weren't given the opportunity that I got, you know, like <laughs> I joined the team coming off a of bronze. So <laughs> I feel a bit responsible for it. But, yeah, I'm hoping that um, come the next Olympics that we, you know, all that money gets put in and we get the good results. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to some fun little questions to close this off in just a second. But just before we do, I mean, yeah. since retirement, it's not like you haven't been busy, Ziggy. I mean, obviously, you know, you you mentioned you're pregnant. Congratulations. You got married. You're on a little show called Survivor. So clearly uh, you've been keeping yourself busy. Outside of those sort of big moments in, in your life, kind of what's post-retirement brought to you? What have you been up to outside of those things we've already mentioned? Yeah, I um, I started running a fair bit um, straight away after water polo. And so um, I started, I joined a netball team, which I'd never played in before. So that was good. Even just going away for weekend, um, like long weekend trips with the girl, like with my girlfriends or with my husband. Um, just, yeah, kind of having the freedom to book holidays and stuff that I'd never even considered because I'd be away and I'd miss training. Um, so that's been nice, but I think the nicest thing since my retirement is, I don't know, I was so hard on myself for so many years, like almost like a bit OCD. Um, and it's just been nice not to put pressure on myself. Like I was constantly doing extra swim sets or, um, just, you know, if they can do it, I can do it twice, you know? Um, whereas now if it's raining, I'm not going to go for a run. Like I'm happy to sleep in, which is nice not to put all that pressure on myself. Which is well too. I mean, we mentioned before your <laughs> age, you're only 29, Ziggy. I mean, you're still, you're very young. You, you've got a whole career ahead of you in kind of, you know, man, no matter what you want to do, motherhood, you know, family life, all that sort of stuff too. So while I'm sure it's a bit of a, a interesting transition coming out of being a professional athlete, you know, an Olympian, all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's sort of, you just get back into to that life and, and focus on that non-sporting side of things and, and form a, you know, a completely different path from now on. Yeah, no, it has been um, very, it, my life now is very different, but it's it's been really nice. And boy, girl, no matter what you have, is it something that 
I don't want to say push on them, but I mean, what would you say if all of a sudden, you know, mum's a water polo player, dad's a water polo player, pull on the the little helmet and get the ball up and running? <laughs> would you encourage them into the pool to play water polo? Yeah, I mean, I love the sport. So if they want to play water polo, go for it. Um, I'll definitely get them into nippers because, yeah, I loved that when I was growing up. But, I mean, I'm thinking that I should, like, push them into tennis or, like, a sport where they actually can make money. Yes. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I'm going to put a tennis racket in their hand young and hopefully they enjoy that. But definitely if, yeah, if they want to play polo, go for it. Um, yeah. If they're tall, you know basketball, you know, if they're good with their feet, football, yeah, soccer, you know. Yeah. The money-making sports. I mean, look, I, I'm a big Formula One Maybe fan golf. and Formula One is, you know, a very high-paid sport. People forget about that. So they've got good eye coordination and they're good behind a wheel. Formula One's an option. Yeah, no, growing up, I, like, played every sport. I played the violin. I, like, just did – I loved art. Like, I just did everything I could. So I just want to give my – kids the same opportunities and then they can just find their own paths from there (laughs) exactly exactly and if all else fails they can go on survivor uh (laughs) (laughs) now uh we'll close this off uh everyone loves this segment it's kind of our my name is segment to refresh people this was sort of a fun little online segment that they did on the team canada website lead up to rio they got an athlete they asked them some fun questions so uh i will go through these with you ziggy and i'm looking forward to these answers First question here for you today. Who to you is the greatest Olympian of all time? Um, I'm going to say Ian Thorpe. Ian Thorpe. Good answer. Thorpey, yes. Uh, Australia's yeah. greatest Olympian. Uh, how do you think Ian Thorpe would go on Survivor? Right? He's, he's kind of, I mean, there is a bit of a trend, I think, with some of these mm. Olympic athletes that we've seen recently on Champions and Contenders, Shane Gould, Stephen Bradbury. Ian Thorpe would be an interesting one out there. Yeah. Honestly, I can't really see him battling it in the rain and the cold and the hunger. Um, the social game, I think he'd have yeah. down pat, though. Yeah, I think he'd be good at the social game, but I, I just can't see him out there. Like, it's so hard. Mm. Um, just the elements. Yeah. Is that that I question that you got asked the most outside of, of Survivor? Like, what's harder, the Olympics or Survivor? Is that kind of the question you always got asked? Uh, yeah. I did get asked that a lot. And, like, definitely the Olympics is harder. It's, like, 12 years every day, every night. Um, whereas Survivors, like, it was really hard, but I, like, chose to be there and it was almost laughable because it was, like, so outrageous, you know. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that uh, when Sorry. Channel 10, when you're on a Channel 10 program, though, you would answer Survivor, of course, though, wouldn't you, Ziggy, to help them with yeah. their ratings? <laughs> they always, like, try and, um, like, get me to say, like, that this was harder. I don't know. They'd always like try and change it a little bit. And I'd like say a little bit of what they wanted, but I wouldn't give them the full lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's uh, understandable. They've got a show Uh, to promote. Uh, What were the first Olympics that you remember watching? Yeah. The Sydney 2000 for sure. Did you go to any events? Yeah. um, I mean, I live in Sydney. So we went to um, the mountain biking. Uh, We watched the triathlon. Um, and like the marathon and stuff, like a lot of the free events. Um, we went to the cycling in the velodrome, which is cool. Um, we went to swimming one day. Wow. I think that's it. Yeah. Wow. That would have been crazy. Did you see any, uh, any of the, the medal wins for Australia at the swimming or do you remember I don't any of that? Think so. I think, I think we just went to like a, uh, heats day. Which still yeah. in itself. I mean, I gosh. Did, I did see a cycling medal. Um, I saw the Madison, yep. um, that 
the guys win that. Um, that was really cool. Which, yeah. I mean, look, yeah, any Australian, it doesn't matter. I mean, obviously Sydney would have been an even, you know, greater experience of living in the city where the Olympics are. But, I mean, as a 13-year-old in Hobart, I remember kind of just, you know, the whole country just swept up in that. It was just, yeah, an incredible time. So fingers crossed for 2032 because it would be fantastic to get the games back in Australia. Uh, if you could be any superhero, who would you be? Any superhero. I would be Spider-Man. Ah, Yes, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, Spider Man, great. And uh, Spider Man in a in a pool, there would I don't know, like I don't know how he really does in water, but um, you know the, the webs could come in handy with the ball. You could catch yeah. it and throw it in the net, so that would work. I like it. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, I love um, coffee flavored ice cream. Mm-hmm. However, at the moment, I think my favorite is a. I think it's a salted caramel and macadamia the connoisseur one i like Ooh, i love it champagne mm. taste i like it ziggy that's uh, <laughs> the ice cream of olympic medalist good job um if you were a baseball player what would your walk-up music be a baseball player yeah so they have that sort of when they go to the pitch and they've got their music to get them pumped up i mean swimmers kind of have it now i guess we could kind of change this to a you know swimmers yeah. are walking up they've got their thing um, right um Maybe just the Eye of the Tiger or yep. Eminem. You've only got one shot. You've not, yeah. Yeah, bit of Eight Mile. I like it. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, I like it. Is that? I mean, going into the pool, like the water polo and that sort of stuff. Can you kind of go out there with the headphones on to kind of get you pumped up, or is it more of the team mindset? Kind of, you know, you want to be team, not individuals there. Yeah, no, you walk out straight into a lineup when you sing the anthem. So no one ever has headphones on or anything like that. Um, there has been, there was like a few random tournaments where you walk out one by one and they introduce you and there's like cool music playing before the lineup. Um, but yeah, generally you walk out as a team um, straight into the national anthem. So no, there's no headphones. But like during warm up time, um, I used to put my headphones in and listen to some music, although it wouldn't really be pump up. It would be like, just cool, like Illy and I don't know, like acoustic music and stuff. <laughs> I thought <laughs> you were about to tell me something like there, and you kind of stopped yourself, like, "Oh yeah, just a bit of Justin Bieber, a bit of Nicky Webster." Yeah, I just <laughs> listen to songs that I like, a bit of Jason Mraz. Yeah, you know. <laughs> no shame, Ziggy. No shame, people. This is the thing. Like, you listen to whatever you want. If you had learnt my music taste, you'd probably hang up on me right now. Uh, the best. I mean, this. I mean, your name is Ziggy. This is a nickname, but outside of that, the best nickname that you've ever been called um oh god i would just get ziggy or the zig the zig yeah zig master Um, lots of people call me nicole which is like not a nickname because my name's nicola but that gets really annoying um the big z the big zig i had that a few times (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um Wow. Yeah, I don't know. Ziggy's cool in itself. I'm I'm happy that I've got a nickname. I think I might have told you when we did the uh, the interview on the Oz Network. My my cat is called Stiggy. Yeah. So it's kind of um you know we we call him like Stigmeister, Stigosaurus Rex. You know we kind of have things like that. So um you know if I think of some yes, fun ones, I got I'll... Zigmeister a lot. Zigmeister. Yeah, Zigmeister is one that I've gotten a lot actually. Yeah, I like the big Z I G though. That that's um <laughs> you know if you ever if you ever decide to pursue a, a rap career, that's that's that where it's it. at. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, if there was a movie made about your life, who would play you? Oh. Um, 
what's her name? I really like her. Um, so do I. She's, she's great. Off the Notebook. She's off oh, the notebook. Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams. I want Rachel McAdams. I like. see it. I can see it. Yeah. You know what though? It would. It would like if you would ask my family, they'd say Sandra Bullock. They, my family, dead set think I'm Miss Congeniality. Really? They would choose her for sure. Yeah. See, I mean, Sandra Bullock's not a bad choice, but I have to say, in terms of personality and you know resemblance, more towards the Rachel McAdams angle, I see it. Thank you. Have, I would choose her. Yeah. Have you seen the new Eurovision movie on Netflix with her in it, with her and Will Ferrell? No. It's no. hilarious. I highly recommend it. Even if you're not a Eurovision okay. fan, it, it's very much worth it. And let's yeah. be honest, okay. we're all Eurovision fans. Come on. Um, if you weren't an athlete, what would you be? Honestly, I reckon I would either be like a mad hippie, like <laughs> I'd be living in Byron Bay, I wouldn't wear shoes, I'd be like fully living the hippie life, or I would have been like in jail. <laughs> I reckon, like, growing up, I seriously have, like, an addictive personality. So if I wasn't in sport, I'd either go, like, super, yeah, I reckon I would have gone, like, super rebellious or, like, super laid back and, like, hippie life. I appreciate the honesty. I don't think I've ever heard yeah. the answer of I would be in jail, but I like it. Yeah. You know? I, w- I reckon I would have just got obsessed with something else and it either would have been, like, really bad or, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you what you would be in jail for, but we can leave that for another uh, episode. This one, this one's such a, a tricky question because I feel this is one that you need to think about more than the question gives you, uh, you know, credit for. What is your favourite song lyric? Mm. I feel like it should be. What is your favourite song? That's an easier question than song lyric. I. I think it might only just because be because I had this song in my head just before, but I really do love the Eight Mile song. Mm-hmm. Um, like you only got one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow this opportunity comes once in a lifetime. lifetime. Like, yeah. I honestly really yeah. love that. What is it? Um, the my yeah. favorite line of that song is um, uh, what is it? Vomit on your sweater, mum's spaghetti or whatever it is. Like mum's spaghetti. Yeah. Nervous, but nervous he was calm and ready. Yeah. Mum's spaghetti. Yeah. Just I love those sort of lines. Right. Are there? Yeah, I reckon that one. The one that there's actually there's a really weird line in that song. I was a big fan of the TV show ER, and I remember that Mackay Pfeiffer, who's in Eight Mile, was in ER. So Eminem raps in that song about Mackay Pfeiffer. There's no Mackay Pfeiffer. This ain't no movie. There's no Mackay Pfeiffer. And I remember like, hey, that's a dude from ER. Like, you know, I, just <laughs> I didn't even know that. Random, so random line in song. Yeah. Uh, what is your guilty pleasure snack? Um, Ferrero Rocher. Oh, good one. Yes. Oh. Or chocolate coated strawberries go down well too. Right. Dark chocolate coated strawberries, but oh, Ferreros are really great. And are these cravings that you have on, you know, when pregnant or can you say, like, oh yeah, I totally crave chocolate covered strawberries. Go get a bunch of them for me. No, no. I like, I pretty much eat everything and I, you know, I love gherkins and I, I just eat everything really. So I was really expecting for some crazy combos to, you know, be craved. And I'm actually disappointed that I haven't really experienced. You've got time, right? You never know when it will strike. Like, boom, there it is. Um, What is the most recent TV show that you binge watched? Oh, oh, so I've been writing to, like, the crime scene Netflix documentaries at the moment. So um, I watched that Henry Epstein one. And then I watched um, Abducted in Plain Sight. Oh. And then I watched um, Ivan the Terrible. 
Um, So pretty much like crime, like real life documentaries, I've been right into at the moment. So remember when you just said that you might have been in jail, kind of making sense now. (laughs) Just, you know, coming together there. You kind of answered, maybe you answered this one before when you were talking about competing in, in Spain for the World Championships, but uh, your favourite place in the world to compete in, where, where was that? Um, yeah, I think I'm going to say Barcelona. That was pretty incredible. Yeah. Fantastic. I don't know if you're much of a video gamer, but if you are, what, what is your favourite video game? Crash Team Racing. Ah, nice choice. Lockdown. When lockdown first started over the Easter weekend, we um, bought off Gumtree a PS2, and Crash Team Racing was one that I was like that I always played growing up. And so, yeah, I've just recently got back on that bandwagon. Love it. Great. I I I love that commitment to buying a PS2. Like that's that's what a console. What other games do you get on the PS2? Um, we've got like a tennis one, which. Oh, I'm pretty hopeless. Um, we've got some <laughs> snowboarding one. Um, we've got a like soccer one, but mostly I just I just play the CTR the whole time. That's, that's the way to go. <laughs> yes, that's. We that's... didn't have memory card for so long, so it was just annoying. Like you didn't want to change between games; you wanted to stay on the same game so that you could advance. Um, yeah. There you go. And it's and it's not like, you know, you actually that's when you had split screen. You don't have to rely on internet now to play against your friends, right? Like you can just there against your husband and just play with the two controllers. Yeah. So good. Yeah, the yeah. good the good old days. Um, what is your biggest fear in life? Um, I'm a bit scared of dying. <laughs> yeah. Solid answer. Um, yeah. That's pretty much it. I'm not, like, really scared of animals or snakes or anything like that. So, yeah, just dying. Like, it's actually, like, legit going to happen. It's scary. <laughs> Sp- you fine with spiders? Yeah, I'm pretty fine with spiders. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't want a whole bunch of them on me, but, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I Turn around. No. Um. <laughs> yeah. uh, the final one here, uh, what is the one thing you can't live without? All right. So I would have always said my toothbrush, but after Survivor and not brushing my teeth for 47 days, I can no longer say that answer. (laughs) Um, But it still is the first thing that comes to my mind. Right. Um, Yeah. I like love brushing my teeth. Um, So I'm just going to stick with it, even though I know that I can live without it. That's fine. That's all good. I, I'm going to remember. I'm going to book note that in my brain, Ziggy, so that when we uh, get you on Australian Survivor Archives in a couple of years to talk about your time on Survivor, that I the first question I got to ask you is, how the hell did you survive with a without a toothbrush? When that's the one thing you can't live without. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Every time I saw myself on TV, I was constantly like going like this, and I was like, stop! Like, oh my god! Like, how did like a producer or like another like contestant not tell me like i was doing that the whole time oh 
Crazy, crazy. Uh, Ziggy, it has been so much fun chatting with you about your time at the Olympics. It, it still baffles me. Back to the very beginning of this interview when I said that kind of, you know, you search your name and, of course, Survivor, you know, l- large fan base, you know, lots of things out there for you. But it, it does baffle me that there isn't a lot more out there and a lot of people talking about your uh, your amazing athletic career because, you know, to, to walk away as an Olympian, an Olympic medalist, a world championship medalist, you know, great achievements and uh, obviously – Something to be very proud of, but uh, really appreciate hearing all your stories today on the show and uh, we definitely appreciate your time and off the podium today. No, thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. And a big thanks to Ziggy there. I feel weird just simply saying Ziggy, Ziggy, like uh, kind of like Madonna. Uh, Ziggy Zagame is uh, probably uh, where you maybe best know her name now. She is, of course, uh, married, different name and all that kind of stuff as well. But uh, I, I completely butchered her last name on the show last week when I teased this, as I as I do often. I, I'm a terrible human being who needs to do a lot more research when it comes to pronouncing names correctly. I'll get it right one day and... Uh, We'll see how that goes. But uh, Ziggy, pleasure to have her on the show today and uh, learn so much more about her time at the Olympics. We've got plenty of these Olympic athletes to come for you. And next week, I am I am beyond excited to, to tell you who we have on the show. Now, we've sort of alternated a little bit between Australian and Canadian athletes, kind of uh, kept that trend going and uh, we're, we're doing that as well next week we'll have a canadian athlete a canadian gold medalist a canadian figure skating gold medalist her name is jamie Saleh, and i as a 15 year old at the salt lake winter olympics watching it remember vividly the the entire controversy around jamie Saleh and her, her partner david peltier and of course the, the outcry of, of anger that came from the, the world uh, about them not winning a gold. Of course, the, the Russian pair won it. They were dubbed to have won the silver. And, of course, it was later revealed that there was a, a judging scandal. The French were involved. Of course, they were. There was so much stuff going on. And ultimately, they were awarded a gold medal as well. And they sort of got equal gold with the Russian pair. So anyone who remembers the Salt Lake Winter Olympics will remember this. It was it was arguably the biggest story of the 2002 Salt Lake Olympics. And I I just was absolutely obsessed with Jamie Soleil and David Peltier and just kind of this whole story. I, I wrote off to them and I got their signed photo, which was on my wall for a very long time. So the fact that you can tell right now that I'm giving all this extra detail, which you'll hear me repeat in that episode, you can tell how excited I am to be able to bring Jamie to this show and, and have a chat about her career and kind of Salt Lake and just everything else in between. Easily one of the, the biggest names we've ever had on the show. So uh, whether you're a Canadian, Australian, no matter who you are, uh, you are going to enjoy that interview. So please check that out next week. It is going to be a lot of fun. And we are definitely going to learn a lot from Jamie Soleil next week. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this interview, uh, enjoyed any of our other interviews, mash that like button on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, stay up to date with uh, what we've got out there. And uh, yeah, we're very, very excited to be able to bring you this content because we kind of were away for a little bit there. After the Commonwealth Games in 2018, we sort of uh, just disappeared for a while. We came back earlier this year for one brief episode and here we are now bringing you a bunch of uh, interviews. So, you know, we took a bit of time off 
and uh, we thought it was about time we actually brought you some content when we really should have been bringing you some Olympic content, but in terms of uh, not bringing you daily content like we do generally during the Olympics, we're here to bring you some fun stuff and kind of during this downtime, I'm glad we've got this opportunity to bring you some great interviews along the way. Thanks again to Ziggy for her time and for you for listening at home. My name is Ben and we'll speak to you next time on Off the Podium. Good night. Tell me never